Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The weather is beautiful here in Davos at the meetings of the World Economic Forum. The theme Globalization 4.0 may be pushed aside by the new slow, yes, Brexit, yes, the shutdown, but also global slowdown. All of this wrapping around conversations on China. And again, as we said earlier, it could be oh, a one or two hour conversation with Laura Cha. She's Hong Kong exchange chair working in finance years with Pillsbury, among other uh, law firms. But far more, she is Laura Cha of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Yes. Yes. What was it like your first day in uh-huh. Madison? I was uh, coming from Hong Kong and uh, a little going, shot. yeah, it was shot. And, and this was in the late 60s. I'm betraying my age. It was the days of the Vietnam protests. Yeah. So I was thrown right into that. And uh, interesting, it was interesting, exciting, and uh, yeah. it, this is a really uh, introduction to the to the United States. It was, States a, it was a politics of the time, and Mr. Yes. Kissinger and Mr. Nixon then right. on to that. In all, if you could have a cocktail right now at the Mandarin Bar in Hong. Hong Kong, Mm. with selected members of the Trump administration who feel China is a behavioral, a cultural, and a social threat. What would you say to them at the MBAR? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, we're talking about different culture. We're talking about inclusion. We have to be accepting of other people's values and culture. But there are some common values even though we may have different culture. I think uh, the core value of, you know, of uh, integrity, um, honesty, uh, these are values that, uh, the rule of law, I mean, these are values that Hong Kong holds dear, mm-hmm. and that is what made Hong Kong successful in the last few decades. Lord Cha, China mm-hmm. has repeatedly promised to open its financial system to right. investors, foreign yes. investors, yes. and foreign companies. Mm-hmm. What more, how's it going, first of all, mm-hmm. and what more do they need to do? Oh, there's actually quite a lot that uh, that the central government can do in opening up the financial market. Uh, when China joined the WTO in 2002, uh, financial services was one of the least open of all the sectors. And over the years, gradually, they have opened up. They have allowed foreign ownership in uh, banks and security houses and so on. But because the currency is not completely convertible, so foreign investors now can access the Chinese markets through Hong Kong, through the Stock Connect scheme. What else can the central government do? I think uh, they have already uh, said a few months ago that they are eliminating the restriction on ownership. But what is more important is really not only just the ownership, but allowing foreign investor to participate in that market and uh, and vice versa. I mean, that uh, that has to be a two-way street. I mean, we, we've seen some crazy moves on the right. stock markets, right? Yeah. I mean, one day that I think companies lost some $5 billion, so, you know, stocks were down some 70%. What can the exchange do to prevent that kind of scenario? You're talking about the exchanges in China? Yes. Well, I think um, the exchanges in China have a very different... Um, problem than the rest of us because a large percentage of the participants in the domestic market are retail investors. So there's a lot of sentiment and people trade on rumors and so on. That That's what 
brought about the big swings. And the institutional investors in China are not yet well developed. So I used to say that the institutional investors in China behave like big retails. So it, instead of providing some uh, anchor to, you know, when the market was volatile, they join in the volatility and make it even more volatile. I think that is certainly an area where the institutional investor can improve. Um, and I think that will bring stability, more stability to the market, domestic market. Ms. Chow, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Laura Chow with us. She is with the Hong Kong Exchange as their chair. This is a joy out right now to speak with a gentleman from Nigeria, Mohamed Barkindo is OPEC Secretary General. And in conversation with his entourage as he came onto our stage, we talked about the history of 1986. Think Daniel Jurgen and the prize and all of the history of OPEC. And it was a cartel. And you collegially take offense with the idea that it's still a cartel. If it's not a cartel at OPEC, what is it? Uh, thank you very much uh, for having me. Of course. And uh, Happy New Year. Good to see you guys. We're still doing uh, Happy New Year? Yeah. What is it? Still, June yeah, 22nd? I, I haven't seen you for It's OPEC time. It's OPEC yeah. time. It's OPEC time. Go on, Mohammed. Now, you're quite correct. We are no longer a cartel. I think we are a free, uh, open, transparent organization, uh, what some of you might call uh, a fishbowl in the U.S., um, we have come a long way. For example, uh, as of today, all our data, all our data, which is our key raw material, is online from 1960 till date. Secondly, most of our publications, the key ones, our monthly oil market report, our annual statistical bulletin, are all online, accessible to all. Our meetings uh, are covered by the global media uh, and they are streamed most of the time live. Uh, we are as open as yeah. any organization that you can think of and we are, we are proud of what we have been able to achieve uh, since uh, the 80s. You're very, very transparent with the data now, yes. admittedly. The process is less transparent to me. When Tom and I sit here on any given morning and the president tweets about OPEC. Is the president the elephant in the room now? The president of the United States? Is he around that table? Well, almost. Is he, he the marginal he, producer or marginal demander? The, 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 the president is the biggest producer in the world today. Uh, and uh, it's logical for him to take more than a passing interest in what OPEC does. Uh, because what we do or fail to do affects him, affects his industry, mm -hmm. and by extension, his economy. Uh, the last downturn has proven beyond any reasonable doubt that both OPEC, the United States, right. and the shell producers were all in the same boat. Mr. Burkino, just because of time, I want to conflate here two basic themes and questions. One is the mystery of Russia, tangential to OPEC, and the other is you've got to get to a meeting in Vienna in April. How should Russia come to the meeting with OPEC in Vienna in April? It, it, it's an odd chemistry right now. How will that chemistry be in April? I think it's been good. Uh, so far, so good. We have come a long way with our Russian friends. OPEC and Russia had instituted 
an energy dialogue as far back as 2006. And during this last downturn, we have worked together with the Russian Federation uh, to reach the historic declaration of cooperation. We also went further to implement from January 2017 to last December what we had agreed upon with very high level uh, of performance, what we refer to as conformity, mm -hmm. or what you call compliance. Uh, the Russians had played uh, a leading role uh, in the entire process so far, and uh, I've got it in good authority from the Russians. They intend to continue to work with us uh, to sustain the balance that we have been able to achieve on a sustainable basis. Mm -hmm. So they're still a reliable partner? Uh, very much so. Have you got any preliminary guidance on compliance through the early part of January? What have you seen so far in the data? Uh, we had just had our technical meetings in Vienna, uh, bringing a close uh, 2018 figures, and we took stock of the implementation of the supply adjustments from January uh, 2017 till date. Uh, I can tell you that uh, the level of performance was well over 100% for both ourselves and the non-OPEC. Uh, we are just beginning to implement uh, our decision on the 6th and 7th right. of December. So it's uh, so far so good. We are on track uh, right. to achieve our common objectives. One of the rumors here in Davos is OPEC split the polar vortex above the Arctic Circle and caused a record cold in America over the last 10 days. What we are focused on is to ensure that inventories that had built up right. in the last downturn to unsustainable levels do not recur in 2019. Do you have visibility on that right now? I mean, we count boats off Singapore, but the answer is do you have visibility on that right we now? We are beginning to see very sharp reductions uh, in supply in conformity to the supply obligations that we agreed upon on the 6th and 7th of December. Mm -hmm. And we have seen that the market has uh, started to respond positively. We have seen the market right. structure, for example. Brent has just flipped into backwardation. Right. Uh, and uh, this is just the beginning uh, of the well, month. Mr. Burkindo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Secretary General with OPEC uh, this morning. continue the conversation here with the chief executive officer that arguably is the single most important executive in America on the emotions of the president of the United States. Arne Sorensen is off the fabric of Minnesota, out of Minnesota law, among other things. He is a Marriott CEO, and of course, as we all know, that uniqueness of being the first non-Marriott to be the Marriott CEO. We can talk here the summation of your travel rewards into your new thing, and you're building hotels. Guess what? the government's in shutdown, and you're at the absolute crucible of this. The, the, I, I read an industry article with you and John Tish about the percentage of immigrants that make Marriott go each and every day. Give us a percentage number of your employees that can relate directly to the national debate. Well, it is, it's not uncommon in our full-service hotels in uh, our urban markets to have 50, 60, 70 nationalities represented. Right. All legal, by the way. We, 
we are very uh, careful. Okay, I'm going to tell you the other side. The president says baloney. They're not all legal. The president has illegal immigrants in his hotels as published. How do you know that they're not undocumented? We use all the tools available, including E-Verify, which is provided by the INS. Mm -hmm. But we are uh, vigilant about the documentation mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that these people have the right to work in the United States. The, the challenge, of course, government shutdown, why? Because uh, both political parties believe it's more important to leave immigration unresolved than to come up with a new consensus. Do you What's your message to them today, then? What's get, your message for them today? Get talking. I mean, I, I think the right thing is to get the government open and then to get engaged in building a national consensus around what fair immigration looks like. Because I think if you ask people across the United States, what are the rules of immigration? How do they work? People would say, I have no idea. Is this confusion right now hurting your business? Oh, it, it varies from market to market. Washington, of course, we're big. That's our yeah. hometown. We have 150 hotels or so in the greater Washington area. Uh, business there is down double digits. Uh, since the government shut down. So that's the domestic tension. Let's talk about the international tension between the United States and China. You've got a decent window into what is happening in the world's second largest economy. How big is the slowdown? Because even a company like Apple is really struggling with near-term visibility. Do you have good near-term visibility as to what is happening in that economy at the moment? Well, we know what happened last night or last week. Uh, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen three months from now. So, yeah. so if, if you're asking right. about our ability to predict, that's more difficult. There are, there are differences, obviously. The, the negatives, there's a trade war. Uh, the Chinese economy is under pressure because of it. The positive, the Chinese are trying to move towards more of a consumer economy. We are in the consumer space. Uh, so Chinese travelers right. within China and abroad, uh, Chinese traveling abroad, we think is continuing to grow up 20%, even wow. with a weaker wow. economy. Well, they're all staying at Marriott, and, uh, no doubt. I'm kidding. So. I don't know if you've been at the Marriott in Tulsa, 1902 East 71st Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. There are workers there for you who are directly affected by the shutdown, directly affected by the debate over immigration, and they've got a real job at Marriott. How does America have confidence that they will advance and prosper in the coming years? How do we as a nation get behind employers like you with these first Americans? Well, it's, it's all about jobs. Um, you, you look at how do... Benefited people, medical jobs. Do you people good, mostly good, get medical plans? All, all the full-time folks have health care. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, some of them have it under their spouse's plans. Sure, of and, course. And so it, I, I shouldn't say 100%, but I think our participation rate, even in, in uh, retirement, our participation rate is 80%. Mm -hmm. Uh, because we think it's important to build, of course, to compensate people fairly, but to build careers for people where they can say, I can work not only last month or this month in one of your hotels, but I can build my career. I can put my kids through school. I can have a house. I can, I can uh, grow in the way I want to grow. And that's what the company's been about for decades. In some ways, over the last couple of months or so, the company's been about managing a crisis around that's the true. hacking. Yep. What's the latest on that? Have you got any idea who was behind it and what the objectives were? I don't know that we'll ever know who was behind it. Um, we, 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 know, we know that somebody was in Star Wars Reservation System for a few years. Uh, of course, we, we did not uh, find that out during the diligence. We don't think Starwood knew that before right. they sold the company to us. Uh, and this was something that was discovered in the fall of 2018. We moved as quickly as we could to do two things. One, to be transparent. So right. that what we knew we had to share with everybody else. And second, to find out as much as we could find out. Do you know how I found but, out about the hacking with Marriott? Go on, how? I had 10 nights at the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta. 
all of a sudden show up on my Marriott rewards. Where did this come from? I mean, everybody was affected, right? Well, I don't know that that's connected. I mean, <laughs> oh, that well, let, but, let but, me ask so, you this, because this is an important question, actually. Right. Do we have firm-wide protocols for when a passport gets scanned in a Marriott hotel? that that is now encrypted? Well, uh, the answer is we're getting there as quickly as we can. Um, a couple of, th I want to say a couple of yeah, things, and I'll come back please to the passports. So by the, the beginning of January, we determined as best we can uh, that none of the payment card information was unencrypted, mm -hmm. which is obviously a very good thing. Yep. We determined that about five million global passports, that is from Chinese travelers, American travelers, right. European travelers, about five million were unencrypted. So that's where the that's where the concern comes from. There is a debate. The U.S. State Department says, "Don't worry about it. Don't replace your passport. A passport number without the passport is worth nothing." But there are others who reasonably say, "Well, wait a second. That's my passport number. I feel violated somehow by that. What you know? What are the consequences of that?" And I think for us, long term, we've got to make sure that everything's encrypted. We've also got to make sure we comply with local law. So for anybody who travels mm -hmm. abroad, in many countries around the world, we're required to take your passport, right. maybe make a physical copy of that passport. Yeah. Right. And encrypting a Xerox copy is not necessarily the leading edge of technology. Right. I, I want one final question. If James Diamond was sitting here, I'd ask him, is he too big as a bank? The question every day has to be, has Marriott become too big with all the mergers, the scope, the scale, the new rewards uh, meshing that you're doing? How do you respond to the idea of Marriott's become too big for the industry? Well, I think it's, I think it's a crazy idea. Well, I know that, but, uh, but, but we, answer we are, directly. We are about 7 to 8% of the hotel rooms in the world. Seven to eight uh, percent. It's hardly a massive share. And by the way, about half of those rooms are run by our franchisees. We don't even price them. Interesting. So it is still a highly competitive business. And what customers are telling us see is they want to be able to stay with us wherever they're going. And they're going lots of different places, mm -hmm. lots of different purposes of their trips. Sometimes they want luxury, sometimes they don't. Yep. And we want to be there for you. Mr. Sorensen, the Marriott CEO, always great to catch up with you. Nice Thank you, you very much for dropping by. Earlier on, I caught up with the Saudi Aramco CEO, Amin Nasser, speaking to me about plans for a takeover of the big Saudi petrochemical giant, Sabic. Take a listen to what he had to say. We are uh, in discussion currently with the public investment fund about the acquisition of 70% of the share of uh, Sabic. Uh, we, we are in discussion with regard to the price at, at, at this stage. Do we have a ballpark figure not, of where the price will be? Not yet. I'm hearing numbers of in and around 65 billion. Is that a ballpark well, figure, 65? I'm, I'm not going to comment on the price because, you know, you understand this is uh, very uh, critical at this stage to be, uh, uh, to keep silent about the negotiation that is currently ongoing with the public investment fund. Well, the energy minister has not been silent about the financing of this acquisition. He's looking at a potential bond issuance coming up, maybe in the second quarter. Could you comment on that, the financing of the potential acquisition? We are exploring, you know, we have a significant uh, capital program to sustain that capital program. And also, 
considering the acquisition, the potential acquisition of 70% uh, of the stake in uh, SABIC. We are exploring all options for funding. Uh, one of it is uh, bond issuance, and that is something that we are looking at right now. Let's talk about the size of the bonds. How much could potentially come to market and the potential duration of them? Well, we are, uh, at this stage, we are, as I said, we are evaluating. Uh, we are uh, going to decide soon exactly how much we would like to uh, uh, take from the bond market. and So it is not decided yet in terms of uh, how much we would like to. Uh, Do you know what your intentions are with the other 30%? The 30% is uh, of Sabic, you talking yeah. about? And well, it is a publicly listed company. 30% is uh, listed in the market. Has the regulator given you a waiver whereby you don't actually have to buy the 30%? Can you just buy the 70%? We are in discussion uh, right now with Public Investment Fund, first of all, about the acquisition of the 70%. And uh, the issue whether we need to or not is in discussion with the CMA with regard to that. Have you had any preliminary guidance on that at all? Uh, our intention is not to acquire anything from the public with regard to uh, the 30% at this stage. So if you're told that you would have to also acquire the 30%, it would actually be a deal breaker for you guys? Well, as I said, this is uh, something right now is in discussion and there's no intention to acquire the 30% from the public. Our intention and our strategy is to acquire the 70% stake in uh, with the public investment fund. There's, all the discussion is about the 70%. Uh, we have no intention of acquiring yeah. the 30% listed in the market. So the guidance we've had from the Energy Minister is that for the 70% you will come to market, you will issue some debt later this year, perhaps in the second quarter. The guidance we've also had is that it will be an international bond. Now, that's going to come with some financial disclosures. Are you prepared to disclose some of the financials? Well, definitely it's going to be international bond. Uh, we're uh, currently in discussion with uh, uh, with regard to uh, how much and uh, where and all of that issuance uh, for the bonds and uh, everything is going well in terms of uh, uh, anything that is required by the regulators yeah. in terms of uh, disclosures, in terms of uh, financial disclosures or any type of disclosure required by uh, the issuance uh, market, we will uh, comply. Well, let's talk about the potential for disclosures, because some of the reporting we have done has shown that Saudi Aramco's books have basically got zero debt, and you're one of the most profitable companies on the planet. When you disclose to issue this bond, is that what you're going to reveal, essentially, that you have no debt on the books and that you are incredibly profitable? We will reveal our balance sheets and any, uh, it's not, you know, we have JVs, they have, they have debt in the market, they have project financing, that's so it's not... Uh, when we uh, disclose, we'll disclose the whole Aramco and all of our JV yeah. uh, in the kingdom and out of the kingdom. Some of them went to the debt market. So all the data with regard to the gearing ratio of Saudi Aramco uh, will be uh, shared. Let's talk about the potential for pricing. The kingdom came to the market quite recently, 10-year money, 175 basis points over treasuries. Do you think when Aramco comes to market, actually spreads will be tighter for Saudi Aramco? That will be decided uh, by the market when we go and uh, seek uh, the bonds. But I think Aramco positions, Aramco is a very successful company. We have great results in 2018 and our history and our track record in terms of performance 
I think uh, we'll, uh, when we share all of that information in, in addition to the disclosure, yeah. the market will decide and uh, we have to agree on... Uh, well, ahead of that, you might have to talk to a credit rating agency. Are you speaking to the credit rating agency we, right now? We have, uh, we did engage a credit rating agency, so we have all of the information required. Are you going to have a better credit rating agency than the Kingdom? Well, we are, as I said, we are maintaining the Kingdom uh, sovereign credit ratings and uh, whatever we have from the other rating agencies, we will be sharing when we go with the disclosure. The CEO of Saudi Aramco there, Amin Nasser, speaking to me a little bit earlier on. This is without question our interview of Davos on this issue of Brexit. For those of us foreign, it is baffling, it is extraordinary. He's a modest journalist at the Evening Standard, <laughs> wandered by Mr. Cameron's uh, government to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, but far more importantly to us that care about design, he is an Osborne of Osborne and Little, definitive in design. What was it like in your childhood bedroom? Did they change the wallpaper every 90 days? <laughs> well, my dad set up Osborne Little, a design yeah. company, and yeah, well, you know, we had to showcase the product and there were always new collections and so the house was always being redecorated. You, you liked the wallpaper when they came in and they said, no, we're moving this out, right? Every year I got my bedroom redecorated. <laughs> this is wonderful. John, bring in, bring in the chance. George, it's a massive change for you now being the editor of a, a newspaper. Before that, of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Did you ever think we'd be where we are now, even after we found out the outcome of the vote a couple of years ago? I thought in the end we would hit a point where the promise that you can leave the EU and have all the benefits of EU membership would run out of road. Uh, I guess I hoped that there would be a more conciliatory approach, that we'd find a middle way through, like a, a sort of uh, Norway model for Britain, you know, outside the EU, but still very closely aligned with the EU. That feels to me like it's gone and we're confronting increasingly the two choices, which is leave the EU without a deal at the end of March or delay or stop Brexit. That's, you know, that's emerging now as the two big choices the country faces. The former Prime Minister, David Cameron, did kind of make the process sound quite straightforward. If the outcome of the vote was that the United Kingdom voted to leave, he would go across to Brussels and trigger Article 50. As we found out, both of you eventually ended up leaving the government. Do you think both of you still have a certain amount of responsibility to the outcome of what has happened in the UK since it was your government that did bring the vote to the British people? Well, I would say, first of all, David Cameron and indeed myself and others did spell out to the country that there would be very serious consequences of leaving the EU, not just for the economy, but for our security relationships and indeed the Western alliance. And I would argue that the process in some ways has been quite straightforward. We've triggered Article 50, there's been a negotiation. It's all been done in a kind of orderly way. The problem isn't the process, it's the policy. What do people want our relationship with the European Union to be? Do we want no relationship at all or do we want a very close relationship? And that remains as contested as possible. So, you know, that, that's, that's the hard politics. That's not about the procedure or the process or whether we have the right civil servants or the right negotiating team. It's about fundamental uh, contradictions in what yeah. Brexit promised. Well, I think, to be fair, I don't think many of us thought it would take that long, as long as it did, to trigger Article 50, yet it did. It took a number of months where many people thought it would happen immediately. And here we are, the clock is ticking, and it looks like we're running out of time. 
Would your advice be to the government, and I'm not sure if they're going to listen to it, George, and I'm not sure you think they would either, but would your advice be to delay Article 50, to push it back? Well, I think it's just not acceptable for this country, my country, to leave the European Union without a deal. That is a big shock to the British economy and, indeed, the European economy. It does enormous long-term reputational damage to the UK, and it's not the way that an advanced nation should behave. So. If we can't get a deal, if there's no Norway on the table, for example, yeah. then we have to delay Brexit. If you're negotiating, though, with the Europeans, George, is it realistic to take it off the table? Well, the, on, the negotiation with the European Union is over. The British government signed a deal in December. Uh, and, you know, you can have any number of oh. European leaders here at Davos come on this show and they will tell you there is no prospect of reopening that talk. And the only person who believes there is at the moment is Theresa May. Her cabinet doesn't think That's it. That's right. The British Parliament doesn't think it. The truth is, the choice right. is either now leave without a deal, or perhaps everyone changes their mind on Theresa May's deal, on Theresa May's okay, deal. Deals unlikely, or delay Brexit in some way, either through okay. a referendum or indeed an election, which I think is, by the way, an underappreciated. Uh, outcome of this whole well, thing. Well, I think there could be an election. I definitely think there could be an election, yeah. Who's okay. going to trigger that? Well, in the end, what will happen is there'll be a confidence vote in the British Parliament and a small number of Conservative MPs will switch sides right. in that vote because they would rather have okay. an election than see our country I, leave I, the European Union without a deal. George, my, my advantage here is I'm an outsider. And for television and radio, we do Civics 101 here and re-explain that Cameron Osborne is the same party as Prime Minister May. I think some people maybe don't, don't realize that, that aren't even reading the Evening Standard eight days a week. With that said, his Prime Minister May she passed her sell-by date. I, I was thunderstruck. There wasn't a window there for her to gracefully resign and move on to a new conservative majority. Did she miss that opportunity? Well, Theresa May's challenge, if you like, was that she called a general election last year and lost the majority that David Cameron and myself and others have built up. So she doesn't have any political authority. And crucially, in the British Constitution, do you want the 101 class, you need George, a majority now as a commons. for a grace from the prime minister to move away from the stubbornness and just step aside for a new vision, a new set of goggles, a new optics within your well, majority I, party? I don't think that's realistic, because I think she's going to stay. I think what's more realistic and what she should do is take this threat of a no deal off the table. Right? She can do that unilaterally. She doesn't need anyone else's consent to do it. Uh, otherwise, she'll allow the parliament into that space. But here's a crucial and, again, underappreciated point. You'll hear on shows like this, it's said that there's a majority in the British parliament to stop a no deal Brexit. Now, that is the default at the moment. We're leaving the EU at the end of March, whether we have a deal or not. And in order to stop it, it's not good enough to say there's a majority against leaving without a deal. That majority has to coalesce around one of the options, either an alternative deal right. or delaying Brexit or asking the EU to delay Brexit or a general election or a referendum. And at the moment, the parliament's quite divided. So, you know, I would say, looking at financial markets, you've got to, A, price in the tail risk that Britain does leave without a deal. And then you have to say, increasingly likely, that Britain is going to remain in the EU at the end of March. I don't know how many people have told you this, but you sound a little like Jeremy Corbyn. Isn't that Jeremy Corbyn's <laughs> no, no one has ever told me Isn't that. that Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> Isn't that Jeremy Corbyn's Well, I think what Cor look, Corbyn is, you know, he's partly being what all opposition leaders are, 
uh, there to cause trouble for the government and, of course, sitting on a very divided party himself, unwilling to come to a single conclusion. The problem with delaying, I'm, I'm telling you what I think is going to happen. Yeah. The problem with delaying is it, it doesn't actually confront the choice Britain now needs to make. Uh, it puts it off, of course, and that's why it's a convenient bucket for people to go into. But I think we are, you know, unless, and I'm quite, I think I'm quite uh, pessimistic about this, unless somehow we can construct some kind of deal which takes Britain out of the EU but keeps us in things like the European Economic Area, which I, by the way, would think is a fairer reflection of a vote that split the country in half, then we're going to be confronted with the only way to stop uh, leaving the EU without a deal, which is stopping Brexit. How do we then look to the arch-Brexiteers, I'm going to mention Boris Johnson as well, who say we have a nostalgia and a vision for doing our own trade deals, doing be, being unilateral in our view of the world, literally hearkening back to the empire, if you uh, yeah. will. Well, it, it's nonsense, it, yeah. It's nonsense, but they have a certain mass. of like, a, How much would you gauge? There's an enormous great billboard on the side of the big hotel here in Davos, which is sponsored, paid for by the British taxpayer, which is Britain is the sponsor of free trade. If we leave the EU without a deal, we are engaging in the biggest act of protectionism in the entire history of the United Kingdom. It's got nothing to do with free trade. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about erecting trade barriers I... with our nearest and biggest well, trade. Some people, some people, though, George, would say that the European Union itself embodies that. It well, is a protectionist regime in the eyes of many people. In fact, in the eyes of many people that voted to leave, that is what the European Union well, stands for. Yeah. You're either in our club, and that's great, and you can enjoy the benefits of that, but if you're outside of it, go fish, you're on your own. Well, and aren't we living that at the moment? Aren't we finding out that that's what the European Union stands for? Well, I would argue that these are countries like France, Germany, Italy, these are our biggest export markets. We're in a free trade zone with them. I'm all for the EU doing trade deals with America, Japan, which has just been concluded, China even. Should the United so, Kingdom do a trade deal with the United States of America? Well, I think the first priority is to have a trade deal with our nearest neighbours, which we're about to tear up mm -hmm. if we leave without a deal. Uh, and, and then, you know, the European Union is the best uh, platform through which you can get a good trade deal with the US. And, you know, things like permanent membership of the customs union right. could have been a route to a deal that more MPs would have supported. The first time I saw your government, you were in minority. I remember David Cameron, it was two swords lengths apart in the House of Commons, and David Cameron was going against Gordon Brown, and it wasn't like America. Are you advantaged or disadvantaged that Jeremy Corbyn is Labour Party head. Would this debate be radically different if there was a different leader of the minority party? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, and it's very sad for those of us who care about our parliamentary democracy and our country's reputation that Labour is not led by a much more moderate social democrat of the kind that has led the Labour Party for all of my lifetime. I think if Labour had that kind of leader, well, there'd probably now be a Labour government as it happens, but even if there weren't a Labour government right now, mm. we would be on the cusp of a big Labour government with a big majority. Uh, but we're not, because the country is understandably very yeah. nervous of Jeremy Corbyn. And ultimately, you know, the country doesn't want to have a choice, I don't think, of simply Jeremy Corbyn or Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's the kind of Brexiteer type. You know, you, there, there is a centre there which is looking and waiting for its voice. Well, let me give you a choice. What would be the worst outcome for the UK economy, a hard Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn as the Prime Minister? Well, I think one leads to the other, so I'm not sure they are a choice. I think, you know, I think Brexit is a... What's the Brexit argument? It's globalisation has failed you, the elites have failed you, 
we need to completely change the way we run the country for the last 45 years. That is Jeremy Corbyn's argument as well. So Brexit opens the door to Corbyn. Corbyn it would be very damaging, of course, to Britain's reputation as a home mm -hmm. of business and free markets. But we're already doing an enormous amount of damage by choosing to leave the EU uh, and erect protectionist barriers and tear up yeah. a, a key feature of the Western Alliance. You're just joining us on Bloomberg Radio. George Osborne with us, journalist as well, uh, as we talk the emotions of his United Kingdom. I want to turn to journalism. I was thunderstruck by the vibrancy of London newspapers. You're at the Evening Standard and just the cacophony there. I would say is radically different than what we have uh, in America where there seems to be much more of a sameness to it. Is the joy of British journalism and print journalism, is it, is it at risk of going away as it has in the United States? Well, first of all, it's great fun editing a newspaper. And for me, you know, it's, it's I, I, I found a fantastic... More, more fun than politics. I found a great second career. And, you know, I'm always trying to speak for our many readers with a, the, the kind of classic London newspaper, have been for 190 years, and I want us to have a broader national readership. I think in the end, you know, you've got to make it entertaining. You, in, when I was a kid in London, the Evening Standard was the way you found out what was going on in the world. These days, you turn on Bloomberg, right? You can get a constant... He can come back. <laughs> you can get a constant commentary on what's going on in the world. So by the time you pick up my newspaper in the afternoon, right. people know this has happened in financial markets or this plane has crashed or this government has fallen. You know, what we can do is provide a context to it. We can make it entertaining. We can inform you. So you cover English football? We do cover English football, particularly my team, Chelsea. Oh, really? And how did West they do London. the other day? They didn't do so well. They, well they're going to be Tottenham on Thursday. I'm okay. in with a cab drop. Thomas become a Tottenham me fan. To do this. I, I, and I like the tots, or I like this team, or the bubbles. The What's the bubble ones called? Are you thinking of West Ham? West Ham, yes. And, and the cab driver's lecturing me on how Arsenal is going to crush Chelsea. Let's be clear, it was the cabbie that predicted the outcome. Yes. How well, we've got a big uh, Tottenham v Chelsea game on Thursday night, which I'm going home for. Are you? You're yes. leaving. The, this is a surveillance break exclusive. <laughs> George Osborne leaving Happy Valley to go home for the game. Final question. Yes. Is there a road back into politics for George Osborne? Yes, there might well be, but at the moment I'm enjoying my life outside and I don't want to go back, uh, you know, to a, this current situation. I, you know, I want to work on things that are building up our country's reputation, not diminishing it. So you're waiting for this to get cleaned up and then well, you're going to walk you know, in? Look, I'm very lucky. I had a very you know, lucky career in politics, yeah. became chancellor, worked with the prime minister. At a very young age as well, George. Uh, yeah, I was, I was fairly young. And, you know, and I worked with David Cameron and a team I really, in, who we were all, you know, a, a happy band of brothers and sisters. You know, that's not British politics at the moment. So I would take some persuading that I give up mm. what I'm doing now to go back to that. George Osborne, great to catch up. Fabulous. The, the former you. UK chancellor of the Exchequer and a Chelsea fan. Who knew that? They're in London, right? The West London They were top. blue. Do you know what? We go back and forth on this so much. Yeah. West London, Chelsea. East London, West, West Ham. Ham. Got it. North London. Arsenal. And? Crystal Palace? Spurs. No. Spurs. South London's Crystal Palace. Okay, well, I knew they were sort of there. Who else is They all hate London? Liverpool. That's yeah, yeah, what I know. Yeah, well, most London clubs hate I'm Liverpool. Learning. In fact, most, most... I'll say this. And, and this happened this weekend while I was in, I think I was in, I guess I was in London. You guys do it right because, you know, I, I kid you about how guys fall down and all that. Yeah. The fiasco in the National Football League over the last week and those two very flawed football games make you guys look like Tom, Tom likes the fact that the clock still runs. The clock still goes. And they That's don't right. stop the game. 
and go I back to look at the decisions. Game was that was brilliant, but New Orleans <laughs> that was, was a field That's goal. really seriously entertaining. George Osborne on the Patriots. Yeah, Did Ram, you see Ram, that well, can we make some news here? Rams or Patriots? Ooh, well, you've got to bat the Patriots, haven't you, in this contest? I don't know. To me, it's like Chelsea, the Tots. I don't have a clue. The tots, can we get you saying Spurs? <laughs> no, the it's the, the Tots. Program? Spurs. Tom Keane alongside me. I'm Jonathan Farrow here in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. A special thanks to George Osborne. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.